Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. It's Monday morning. I'm going to try to... uh do this bio today. Uh, our sponsor today is the Raiden family. They're, they're sponsoring the whole week uh, from Florida. And uh, that's where it should be now. My, some of my kids are in Florida. Here in Baltimore, it's, a, it's like a blizzard. Uh, and the kids are all angry because it's wasted. They're uh, having vacation. Anyway, they want a blizzard during school time. But now with the Zoom, it doesn't matter, does it? Anyway, today's sponsors are the Raidens. In, in honor of his parents, Alice and Eva Raiden. Good friends of mine, we could do a series podcast on them, their experiences in the Second World War. But Baruch Hashem, they've lived to see children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so forth. They should have many more simchas. Uh, I'm not going to do part two of Laser Silver today, because Zev Raiden asked me to do somebody else, a Rishon or somebody like that, somebody big for whatever reason. And uh, when my steady sponsor, that's something I try to accommodate. So, if you want a Rishon, I was sitting back and thinking last night, and I said, I would consider the classic Rishon be the Rashba. Uh, besides Rashi and Toso on the page, of course, and all that, if you think of the classic Rishon, in my opinion, is the Rashba. And so I'm going to try to do the Rashba today, even though I've got to restrain myself. Otherwise, I'm going to end up going three, four, five hours and just call part one like I did with Silver. So, let's see if I can uh, confine this stuff. So we're dealing with somebody who was a, a Spanish a rabbi in the before Spain existed in the 1200s, now the 13th century. The Rosh was something like 1230 to 1305, something like that. And uh, so it means if somebody lived to be about 75 years old, you know, approximately 76, whatever. That's a fairly long time in those days. Now, the Rajva, Shlomo Benadrit, Benadrit, lived all his life in Barcelona. We're dealing now with um, Spain, before it was Spain. Very briefly, I've said this many other times, but I know sometimes you have to cross it over. Refer to Iberian Peninsula, where you call Spain and Portugal today. Let's call it Spain. So this is a territory that was conquered by the Arabs, uh, 98% in the uh, 600, uh, early 700s, rather. And, uh, but like the cancer, you know, if you don't get it, all of it, then the cancer comes back. So since they didn't finish off all the Christians, only 95, 98%. So eventually the Christians started working backwards and they reversed the Muslim conquest over 800 years. So, or almost, that's called the Reconquista, the Reconquest. And what happened was that, uh, if the Arabs conquered everything in the 700s, by the late 700s and 800s, the Christians are already on the rollback, very slowly, right? But steadily. So by the time you get to our hero in the 1200s, the uh, the Christians had established several different kingdoms, uh, which later became Spain, but at that time were separate countries. And our story takes place in the kingdom of Aragon, which I've mentioned from time to time because Aragon 
is actually the home of most of these uh, yeshiva shavashonim that you've heard about. The Ramban, the Rashba, the Ritva, the Ran, and so forth. Right? They were Aragonese rabbis. The king of Aragon is what's called Catalonia. That's the, I guess, the eastern part of Spain, the part facing the Mediterranean. Not the western part facing the Atlantic. If you know what I'm talking about, I can't help that. Now, the capital city was Barcelona. And uh, Barcelona was one of the first cities the Christians reconquered way back in the 700s, you know? So it's a Christian area. It's not a Muslim area. And it uh, became the capital of this kingdom. And in the time of the Rajba, in the time of the, of the Ramban and the Raja, in the 1200s, the king of Catalonia, king of Aragon, was very famous, James I, Jaime. And he conquered a lot of Arab stuff back. So the kingdom expanded significantly. The Now I'm going through all this for a reason. The, the Jews and the rabbis who live in this kingdom lived in what was a rather highly regulated medieval state. Usually a lot of these places were like feudal kingdoms and you know, the Hefkeris and so forth. Not Aragon. Here the government, the king really was interested in controlling everything and poke his nose in all kinds of affairs, good and bad, and that certainly applied to the Jews. So during the time of the Rajvah, uh the government was highly connected, highly involved in the Jewish community, for better and worse. Now, uh, the Rajvah himself, now listen closely, people get this wrong. Rajvah lived all of his life in Barcelona. He was not the Rav there, uh, although he will be the greatest guttle of his time, or one of the two, as you'll see in a second. This uh, Shalom Ben Adrit came from a rich family. Most of these big rabbis in Aragon came from well-to-do families. Otherwise, how can you afford to learn? Why aren't you just working all day long? Uh, they came family of what we call bankers, of money lenders. And money lending is a tricky business. You know, you lend a lot of money. If they pay back, you're in good shape. If they don't pay back, you're in trouble. But in a well-run economy, if the king wants the government to function smoothly, he'll make sure that people pay their debts. And that was the case in the 13th century when the Rajvah lived. Now, uh, as far as the Torah and yeshiva stuff is concerned, you have like a, a golden chain, murder's robe. Uh, you had the Bali Tosfus, and then they handed it off to the Ramban and the Rabbeinu and then they handed it off to the Rajvah in his generation, and the Rajvah handed it off to the Ritva, that's next generation. The Ritva handed it off like to the Ran. You see how it's going? That's your glorious Sephardish uh, Rishonim, as the yeshiva guys think of it. The big names are in the 12 and 1300s. Later on, things got worse. Okay, by the time I'm talking about, so it's more or less, again, it's uh, Ramban Rabbein Yona, and then it's the Rajva generation, Rajvan Ra, and then it's the uh, uh, Ritva generation as the Ran, and then it's uh, the Rebush. And that's, you know, kind of, and then it all falls apart. That's kind of like the way it went. That's a pretty heavy lineup I just mentioned, okay? And Rajva is the very center of it. So here we have somebody um, trying to give you the background who was born to a rich family. Obviously, was very good in learning. Uh, from near him lives the Ramban. Um, our hero came from a family who must have Torah Gedul and meaning they were from and rich. What we know about is that he went to learn by the Rabbeinu Yonah, who I mentioned previously, had a big yeshiva um, 
had a big yeshiva uh, in, um, what do you call it, in, in Toledo. No, it was in the kingdom of Castile. So it's just interesting. The Raj was from one city. To give you a general idea, it's like he lived in New York and went to learn in Chicago, approximately, right? And that's because uh, uh, Benny Yonah was the big name, and he was big Rosh Hashiva. I tried to explain this. People think of Benny Yonah always in terms of the Shari Chuba, which is true, but that's the smallest part of what he did. Mainly, the Benny Yonah was in learning. The Aliyah's Benny Yonah, that kind of thing. And so the Ramban was a student of his, he also learned by the Ramban, uh, who was much closer to home. So we don't have details of exactly how he went. You know, did he first go to Lakewood and then went to Mir? Did he go to Mir and then went to Lakewood? We don't have those details. But no, he learned by the biggies. Obviously, he was a genius. And I'll say more than that. He must have had the kind of character to be highly disciplined, highly, highly productive. Because I think most people know, even before I open my mouth, that the Raja will be considered among the most prolific and productive of all the Rishonim, in terms of literary output. But it's much more than that. So here you have a guy who comes from family's money. He himself was part of the family business all of his life. So here's, what I mean is, contrary to what you might think, the Raja was never a Rav. In Aragon, didn't have Rabbanim the way you imagined it. There were show rabbis. That's just a local salary guy whose job is to run the services. It's not what you think. Okay? If you think about a Rav, like you would have in Northern Europe, a Rav of a Kehillah, in Aragon, it was a charismatic office. It's, it's very interesting. The one who was perceived as being the biggie, he's the one who um, would get the job. You understand? He's the one who would get the job. So, it's not a job even. So, if you want to understand who the Rajva is, imagine... I'm just making this up. Imagine a guy who does, uh, like I said, I'm just I'm just inventing a, a, a scenario. Imagine a guy who does very well in real estate or nursing homes. Uh, so he's loaded. He happens to be very good in learning. And that's what he likes to do. Real estate might be a better example because you don't have to put all your time in it. You understand? You have to work at nine to five. You make your investments and so forth. And then... He's not only a guy who does well in real estate, who gives a successful dafyomi. Uh, that's an American model. Imagine a guy who does very well in real estate and opens a yeshiva. And that yeshiva becomes something like Lakewood or whatever. Simply because you're the best guy. Now, how does that yeshiva run on the money? He's got the money. I don't know how loaded he was, but he was well off. In addition to that, so in other words, what I mean is, here's the person of the Rosh Yeshiva, who is... Heavy in lumdas, giving lumdas sh shiurim every day. Every day. Separate from that, or in addition to that, he also is into halacha. He likes to, uh, you know, paskin and write chubas. If you can imagine a person like that, you have an idea who the Rajba is. Is he the chief rabbi of Lakewood? There is no such thing. Is he the chief rabbi of Brooklyn? There is no such thing. You see? It's a charismatic business, right? If people will go to you like they do in America. They'll go to this rabbi because he's got a reputation for knowing halacha. They'll go to that guy who has a reputation for an alumnus. There's a charismatic authority. The Rajva uh, is remarkable because he attained, he lived his life that way. The, the difference would be that in America you have separation of church and state. In Aragon you had the reverse. 
he had the highly intermixed uh, uh, connections between church and state, including the Jewish community. Obviously, it's a Christian country, Catholic country, but the kings in Aragon made it their business to be intimately connected with the Jewish community. Uh, every Kehillah, Alhama they call it, every Kehillah in the country, you know, had direct, was under control of the king, obviously, or the nobles, ultimately under the king. And the king made his business know what's going on in all those countries. He had bureaucrats, okay? And uh, he is, oh, what shall I say, uh, running the country, fighting the wars, having all the intrigues, but at the same time, knowing Vastosach in all of his cities. And uh, whenever there's a Jewish community, they'll have some kind of elections or other for officers. When I say elections, 1% of the membership votes, you know, it's the Middle Ages. But nevertheless, when the king has a thing like this, you got to get his confirmation. So imagine, again, using Baltimore or Lakewood or something like that, imagine a shoal, right, or a set of shoals electing a rabbi and president to the shoal and things like that. And then it's got to get rubber stamped by the, by the king. You follow? And in order to get stamped by the king, you got to pay him off because it's all about money. Okay? It's all about money. And so uh, uh, this is the way life was lived. If the, if, the, if the community wants to make a takana, the king has to approve. You see? Uh, if there are new tax regulations, you're darn right the king has to approve, or his officials. And uh, how did the king operate this uh, whole system? Well, you rely on the local Jewish communities to run their local affairs. If any problems arise, they can appeal to the king, and they did all the time. A guy's like this, I just got screwed over by a bad basin. Uh, they really were in, uh, in in communication with the other side. You know, everybody says that. Uh, you lose a case, you say the basin was bad. Sometimes it's like that, right? And with the kings in Aragon, this is a fascinating part. What they did was, um, if it was a, if it sounded like it's something possibly real, he would flip it over to some recognized rabbi and say, you handle the case and keep me informed. So in the case of our hero, the Rajba, uh, if he's born in 1230, so by the 1250s, he's already a young man. Uh, Ramban had to leave the country in 1263 after that famous debate. Uh, where the king said nothing will happen to you, but that didn't happen. So the king said, get out of here while while you can before the Catholic Church arrests you. When the Ramban left, I think the Raj was the one holding the ball. He was the big one after him. He had been clearly a big student of the uh, of the Ramban and others. He was a bar hockey, but he was a 30, uh, to be exact, 32, 33 years old. You can hear it. And uh, like I said before, he came from the aristocratic class like the uh, Ramban did. Ramban was an MD, the Raja was not. The Raja was a businessman. But when I say a businessman, don't imagine a guy working nine to you know nine to five. Uh look, I wasn't there, but you know, lending money and all that, I mean you do have to keep track of your of your stuff. Uh I don't know how he did it. But remember, the Rajba will I think many people know this. The Rajva will publish or they will publish for him thousands of chubas, not hundreds, thousands of chubas. And the fat five-volume set of the Chubas Sarajva is only half or a third of what he really put out. You know what I'm saying? So imagine a guy who is probably ready. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. He's probably writing a Chuba or two every day. So that means, that, that I mean, that's incredible. That means you've got to be holding in all shots and, and postgame. 
True, it's the 1200s, so there's not as much stuff as today, but still, you have to be holding all the sugyas, holding them to the degree that you have a shiloh, and you just uh, write it out the, uh, the argumentation. And if you know the Shuvah Zerashva, and many of you do, I'm sure, you know, some are long, some are short, and it's pretty, you know, this is what it is. Separate from that, he is also, you know, giving the shiurim. I'll talk about it in a second if I remember. Uh, I mean, it's written down here. But he attained, let me put it this way, if he had thousands of Shuvahs, that means people, thousands of people wrote to him. If thousands of people write to him, what does that tell you? <laughs> you know? And more importantly, not more importantly, but interesting from the historical perspective, uh, a number of historians have uh, gone to the records that survive in the Kingdom of Aragon. It's one of the few places in Europe where you have these old records. This is going on since the 1800s, since Regnier and then Fritz Baer, and now more recently, Professor Assis, who wrote a very nice book. If you're interested in this sort of thing, anyway, I will recommend to you to get the book from Professor Assis Yantav Assis from Hebrew, I think. It's called The Golden Age of Aragonese Jewelry, Community and Society in the Crown of Aragon, uh, 12, 13, 13, 27, which is exactly the time of the um, Rambai. Somebody gave me this book. I don't even remember who. Somebody gave it to me. It was very nice of them. Uh, and he did his homework in the Gaisha records. And what you see over here is that the Rajbo was very frequently summoned by the king to judge cases. So in other words, if a guy claims, I got cheated, screwed over by some local basin or some corrupt kahila, if the king thinks, if he if he comes across to the king as somebody who's just bloviating, you know, just shooting the bull, then he's not even going to listen to it. But if it looks like it's a, it's a real guy, let's say, for example, a reputable businessman who the king knows because he's dealt with him. And the guy said, I had uh, business dealings. I'm from Barcelona. I had business dealings in Saragossa. And Saragossa, they, they, they screwed me over. They said the, the, the best one was a, a bad. Or the killer made some bad tacon or something like that. So a reputable businessman, Mistama, there's something to it. Now, you might tell me like this. Why are you going to the air calls? Yeah, that's easy, you pious, high, pious person. If you got messed over by what you consider a corrupt basin or a corrupt gehilla, you're going to the police. See, that's the way it is in Jewish history. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I know Elam Shpatmasher Tosan Lufnayim. But very often, after Tosan Lufnayim, if everything's fine and they're above board, you know, fine. If you have a basin or some other process which is not above board, which unfortunately has been the case from time to time in Jewish history, I'll go no farther than that, they will find, I'm speaking historically now, people went to the Goyim, okay? And uh, so in our case, what the king would do, would say, um, all right, Solomon ben Adrit, the Rajbah, was known to the king, King James I, his successor uh, Pedro uh, III, and his successor Alfonso, and even his successor Jaime, what do you call it, James II, you don't need to know that. Anyway, and we have records from these kings in which they tell the Rajva, judge this case. This guy said that the local basin messed him over. You you examine the, the situation. Do your uh, homework. I, I the king order you to this and find out whether the guy was given a just verdict. And the Rajva, who I'm sure wasn't interested in doing this, basically would go and have to talk to the local basin and, and examine all the uh, documents you know what I'm saying? Examine the documents and the Gvias Aedas 
and then asked him, how come, you know, you don't, and find out what the guy's complaints are. So he had to have a basin on the basin, as it were, and a one-man basin on the basin. So that's a pain in the neck, she come oh, Welcome to the life of the Rajva. Okay? There are so many of these documents, and the king's always telling him, you have to go and do this, and he's doing the Shem Shema, I mean, the Rajva will go and do it. Now, by the way, sometimes you go into a local community, and they don't like the fact that some big goro is coming to check over the situation because it might be corrupt. Uh, very often these kind of cases would involve, you know, in a, in a typical Jewish community, I never heard of a Jewish kahil in history that didn't have two teams fighting each other. The Schwartzes and the Friedmans, the Katzes and the Cones. You understand? Markowitz versus Berkowitz. <laughs> this, this is how it goes. That's only two. There could be even more. And usually would have political fights, basin fights, and nowadays you'd have fights over the vaccines or something like that. You know what I mean? So, uh, and the Rasha was sound like a troubleshooter. We have records from the Gaisha records. King Pedro the Third, Tendon de Villafranca, the Rasha, when he was like 50, to go and do investigation on something that smelled, uh, some bad case. They beat him up. And they still knew. I'm talking about the Rajma. He was jumped at night. Right? That means, can you imagine? That means whoever had done the cheating didn't like the fact that this big rabbi is coming in. And they jumped him. They beat him up at night. The king ordered FBI investigation. And after that, gave the Rajma like a, a what, what's the right, security guard. So we have a, the, the Golador having to go Jewish communities with Geisha bodyguards. <laughs> right? Make sure the Jews... Don't do anything wrong. Is it crazy? Welcome to the world of the 1200s, and particularly in Aragon and Castile. The Jewish communities in these in these centuries are famous that they were given by the king extreme powers. They could do Chayim Misa. Right? They could do Chayim Misa. And they did. And not only Chayim Misa, I'm sure I've spoken about this before, but I could do Chayim anything. Kotz uh, Yada, anything. In other words, they did not regard themselves as being bound by Talmudic law. Right? But rather, what they said is based in Makim Vonshin Shalom and Adin. And they knew that Sugi very clearly. You know, once upon a time, a guy was riding on a horse on Shabbos and they stoned him. Lomishum Shadin Kachalmishum Hashad Trichalakach. The guy, whatever, with his wife under a tree and same thing. You know, all those famous cases. This is the classic century when the Jewish communities, the Kehillahs, were given maximum power by the state. And the kings would back him up. Uh, now again, the Rajvah was was uh, connected with a whole bunch of these cases, not because he wanted to do it. There's a wonderful article by David Kaufman, the famous uh, historian in Europe, the conservative guy from the Budapest Seminary, about Jewish informers in the Middle Ages. There was a guy, Vidalon de la Porta, he must have been related to the Ramban, the Laporta. And Vidalon is a Chaim. And the guy was a Musser. One of the big problems you had in every generation is Mosrim. Uh, Mosrim. I'm talking about plain and simple Mosrim without any excuses. And this guy uh, got the Jews in trouble over and over again until finally some rich and powerful Jews at court went to the king, I think it was Pedro, and they said... Make it impossible for anybody to survive. If you want Jewish communities to survive, you can't look at every little thing they're doing. And if you, it's funny what I'm saying. 
they said to the king, we have to have a certain amount of privacy. And if this guy's telling all the, the secrets all the time, and if that's when you hear the secrets, fine. You'll hear the secrets, but the communities will fall apart. Therefore, you, the king, should let us kill this guy as a musser in order to restore basic stability and tranquility in your kingdom among the Jewish communities. Isn't that a nutty argument? Let us kill the mo you. You took the messiah from him. Now let's kill him. Plus, I'm sure they paid him off. They were uh, rich and powerful Jewish courtiers. In Spain, the only country in Europe, in Aragon and Castile, you had Jews who had high positions at court because they needed the money skills. And um, the king said, fine. And all the Kehillahs immediately drafted the courts to judge this guy for Messira that he had done in different Kehillahs. And uh, the evidence was presented to the king. And the king did what I said before. He said, well, I'm handing this over to the Rajba. That <laughs> was like a troubleshooter. In this case, the Rajba and the Rabbeinu Yonah. Not the famous Rabbeinu Yonah, but his nephew. There was another Rabbeinu Yonah of Gurana. And um, he said to these two, listen, I ain't got the time to do all this. You guys review the case and give me your verdict. And if the guy's Chayv Masira, then we'll kill him. So let me have it. Now, Rajput didn't want to get involved in this. You know, who wants to touch like a 10-foot pole? But all those cases he didn't want to get involved with. Same thing with Benayona. Let me give you an example. You do a regular Masira case, all the relatives will come after you. You get it? Who needs that? They'll try to kill you. Uh, and so I'm trying to show you, Dirajba is not who you think is. is in a very interesting life. And um, so what happened? So they, they uh, delayed. You understand? They said, well, reviewing the case. Uh, after six months, after a year, the king said, knew what happened. Isn't that amazing? What happened? They said, well, we're not 100% sure yet. The king said to Dirajba, Either you give me the verdict right now, or I arrest you and bring you to me in chains. No, you'll get in trouble. You'll get tortured. Well, in that case, they said very reluctantly, they issued a verdict that he is indeed guilty of Masira, Nitzchayimisa, and the king executed him. You know what I'm saying? The king executed him. Wait a minute, I'm not finished. Uh, in fact, they executed him by cutting his veins in front of the Jewish cemetery, let him bleed to death. So the Goyim killed the guy who was most to the Goyim. Then the relatives of the guy, after a while, uh, started complaining to the king that the Rajah had acted incorrectly, committed judicial murder. Listen to this. They told the king, under Talmudic law, there's no Chaimisa nowadays. Right? Because we don't have Smuchim. There's no basin of 23. And so what the Rajah did was illegal. As if they hadn't been doing this in Spain all the time anyway. And the king took this seriously enough to tell the Raja, what do you have to say for yourself? And the Raja got scared to death. And uh, this is not in truth of the Raja, this is actually found in Oxford in a manuscript. And the Raja said, what I did was okay, and it follows normative Jewish law. It actually is okay under Talmudic law, because Messira is an exception. Right? Usually, in the Talmudic laws, we all know, there's a high bar of uh, judicial, uh, what's the right word, due process. You need eight him, you need two eight him, you need a hasra, you need drishal hakira, the whole nine yards. Uh, 
but in the Gemara, not a Moser. By Moser, you can be Machmani Edim, you can don the guy in Shlobafana. There's all these cases. And so listen to this. The Rajva appealed to the other big rabbi of the generation, who he said was the biggest rabbi of the time, the Marm Rottenberg. So he told the king, I'm going to write to the biggest rabbi in Germany. He's not negated to this case altogether. And strictly from the point of view of Talmudic law, am I right or am I wrong? Are the charges against me sustainable or not? And he wrote this whole letter, and the Marm Rottenberg totally backed him up. Right? Marm Rottenberg totally backed him up, which is kind of funny. Because a few years later, the Marm Rottenberg himself was screwed over by some Moser, which led to his imprisonment and death. Then his student, the Rush, ran away and ended up in Spain, where he immediately teamed up with the Rajwa in Barcelona. Rajwa got him a stellar in, in Toledo. Sure, because they knew each other from this case already anyway. And they both had the same opinion about the Mosrim. And there are many cases in the Chubas of Rajwa and the Chubas of Rush about Masira and killing people and chopping off noses of girls who committed adultery and chopping off hands and torture and all kinds of things, which you usually don't associate with the regular Talmudic law, but which they certainly did in Spain, with the approval of the government. So here you have somebody that's a, that's a businessman. All right? I mean, to run a business like money lending, you have to be highly organized, and you have to keep it, your accounts. I mean, it goes without saying. And so don't be surprised if the Rajva uh, brings a businessman's skills to the Torah writing. Uh, we've found many people over the course of these podcasts sort of like that. The fact that they were businessmen was a plus and not a minus in their learning. It helped them bring an organized approach, I would say. Uh, so here's a person running a business. He was a, a, from the well-to-do families, the old families. Therefore, he wasn't the Av Basin of Barcelona, but rather he was a member on the board of directors for a long time. You get what I'm saying? He was a secretarius. One of the, one of the, as we, I'll use a term you've heard of, Shiva Tuvir, my manager, Shiva Tuvir. He'd be one of the Shiva Tuvir. In, in Barcelona, they called him Namanim, Adelantados in Spanish. And uh, so he was a member of the board of directors of the Kihala. But being who he was, just from his personal personality and knowledge, he was a world famous Goro, maybe the world famous Goro. So it's just interesting. We don't have these models exactly in America, right? It'd be like, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Uh, but it'd be, like a, it'd be like there was a board of directors of the whole Jewish community of New York, and one of the members of the board of directors of 15 was Ramosha Feinstein. Well, his authority doesn't necessarily come from being one of the 15 board of directors. It comes from being Moshe Feinstein. But the fact he's a member of that board does put him in real action power. Because a guy like the Rajah doesn't have to go and talk to the Kehila who pays his salary. Nobody pays this guy's salary. He can tell them all to drop dead. You know what I'm saying? He's not looking at them as an employee to an employer. Now, there were plenty of Rabbonim of Shoals that were employees to an employer. But not the Rajah. Not people of that stature. It's just very interesting. Now, totally separate from that, they were in Yeshiva. I remember reading once the Rashi Yeshiva had like five, six, seven hundred guys, which is humongous for the Middle Ages, but it could be true. And the Rajva had such a name, they attracted people from all over the world. And I remember he had students from Russia, from Germany, from everywhere, which is amazing. So if you went to Barcelona, I've never been in Barcelona. I went on a trip once 
to Spain, but we did the Castile route. We would did Madrid and Toledo and down to Gibraltar and so forth. To go the other way, which is Barcelona and Girona, that's another trip I hope to do in the future one time. That would be Aragonese jewelry. Barcelona's an important port. It was the capital city of the kingdom. It had an important Jewish community. Uh, all that is true. Not everybody was so from. In general, you should know. Time of the Rajra, everybody was from, but not many people were from. No, everybody was Orthodox. But if you're familiar at all with his Chubas and those of his contemporaries, you have every... Gila, Rai, are everywhere. Okay? Life is life. You get it? Life is life. And... Uh, so he had this yeshiva. The Rajwa would be, I would say, the outstanding example, in my opinion, of the uh, uh, new style of learning that came to Spain and got rooted there, what we call Chidushim. Basically, uh, I've spoken about it many times before, without spending an hour on this, Rashi came along in the 10 hundreds and wrote the Rashi style, which was just off an art. Right? Rashi clearly made it his agenda just to address the, the, the page of the Gemara in front of you and not to collate it most of the time with other places in the Shas. The Balitosis came along after Rashi and sort of subjected all that to a dialectical criticism. Notice, hey, you forgot to compare and contrast this with other places in the Gemara. That's what the Balitosis do. This dialectical approach, which is what they call it, the compare and contrasting, uh, of the different sources and coming out with a synthetic um, answer uh, became the, the style of learning. That's what we call the tosis. The, uh, they were in the 1100s, the Bali tosis, in the early 1200s. Well, in the early, right in that time, around the early 1200s, that's when some of these tosophistic type learners came to uh, northern Spain, where our hero lived. Uh, it's also true that some of the Spanish guys already went to learn in Tosafistic yeshivas. So, for example, Rabbeinu Yona, who was the Rebbe of our hero, learned in an Ashkenazic yeshiva in Rouen, in, in, in Normandy. Isn't that interesting? Rabbeinu Yona was a guy from Spain, from rich and important family over there, very from, of course. But he didn't study in Spanish yeshiva. It was perceived by him that the place of the real learning is up north, in um, in Ashkenaz, in uh, in France, and uh, that was by the Tos by the Tosavists. So Benigno learned up there. Then he came back and had his own yeshiva in 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 um, in Spain in Toledo, and the Rashba learned by him, and also by the Ramban. Ramban also had a teacher who had been from the Tosavistic style, and so this whole approach of collating, of comparing and contrasting, what they call dialectics, was picked up by this generation. And they developed it in Spain, and that's what we call the Chedushim. So therefore, as everybody knows, you read, for example, for example, the Chedushim Rashba, it's the same questions you find in Tosas, sometimes same answer and sometimes different answer. That's the whole point of learning the Rashba. Has he rephrased it or give a different answer? Right? But the, the basic approach is there. Now, uh, I would say, I think most people would say that the Rashba would be the outstanding example of Rashba Ritva of this. Uh, don't you agree? The Ramban is hard to read. The Rashi is not hard to read. He was, uh, in my opinion, uh, a very good writer, which is why it's so popular. And uh, therefore, the yeshivas, that's what they do. <laughs> a lot of yeshivas learn 
is uh, the sugi with the Rashba. So notice he attained this gigantic canonical status, but that ain't all. So here's a guy, and by the way, he spent his life doing this. He lived to be 70-something. So, Jesse should know, if you read the intro to these blue Rajvas, for the most part of Cook and that sort of thing, they tell you this. Professor Toshma wrote about it. The Rajva did several recensions. In other words, you could have Kedusha Rajva round one, and then years later, he changed his mind or added or subtracted. Nothing wrong with that. That'd be round two. And then even they had like round three, Madur at least saw. So you're never sure when you look at the Kedusha Rajva which layer you're talking about. Unless you have these uh, blue ones now, then I think, I believe they do that homework for you. You know, they, they, they compare you know, the different editions. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is that in the course of Jewish history, most of the Chidushi Rajva, per se, you know, ended up in a place like Shittim Gubetzis. It was like rather late, 16, 1700s, I believe, that they started to churn out all the Chidushi Rajva and the Sechtas, which actually started a certain intellectual revolution in Ashkenaz. That's a separate discussion. Uh, uh, Toshma has written on this. If you look at the publication dates, when the Rashba stuff actually started to get published and circulating among the Ashkenazi yeshivas, then they get the modern lambdas. It's, it's it's very interesting. Uh, that'd be too far afield for for most people here. I won't go into that. So I'm presenting a very interesting person. Well, am I presenting a really interesting person? There's very little we know about the Rashba himself. He didn't leave all this kind of... We, we, we have a lot of this external stuff. Uh, like I said, he came from well-to-do family. From family. Uh, came from a nice family. I always remember from the uh, Simchas Torah book by, um, what's his name, Nayari, that he was asked a question the Rajwa that they had a minig in a certain place that on Simchas Torah, and, you know, everything falls apart in Simchas Torah. It's like a carnival. When a guy gets an aliyah, can you put a crown on him from the Sefer Torah? So the Sefer Torah is a remon or a crown. And while, let's say I'm getting coin. So when I'm getting coin, while I'm doing it, I wear the crown. So it's a, I have a, it's a 13th century Swedish shtick, all right? Like Liberace. Is that okay? Uh, Right? Right? And what about, can you put it on kids? Because the guy said this, I'm buying Shlishi, but my kid gets to wear the Torah crown. And they asked the Rajva, How can you take something from a Sefer Torah and put it on a kid? And he said, well, that was my minute when I was a little kid. Gambier is those Barcelona's, a Hunikisha, you see cotton. The Raja said, when I was a kid, are you looking at Taurus Hasmarm? The Messimba Broshi, Broshi Atinokos, a Molichon of Sambabayas, Shahimunachasham, a Yala Shomer. We used to basically march around, you know, in the procession with Torah crowns. Which is a very pretty idea. Now that the children of the future Torahs, you know, follow Michel Biyamacham Shabador. And, you know, the rabbis said, when I was young, didn't protest, so it must be okay. Which is a very typical simplest Torah type, Shaila and Shua. Uh, so, he seems to have come from like a, normal, a mellow type family, you might say. And that's that's why I surmise. Um, now, he, uh, therefore, is a person 
who's a businessman, who runs the yeshiva, is doing these amazing uh, shiurim, that's the chidushim. Uh, he also was well aware of the hefkeris that characterized Jewish life in the 13th century, because most people out there are, are amratzim. A lot of bad men hugging. And life was strange with this intervention of the king and everything. For example, uh, when it comes to kashras, the king might decide, I'm telling you, yeah, the king might decide uh, the the, the kashras in Baltimore, I'm taking away from the star K, and the guy I'm putting in charge of the kashras is a mashuman. Such a thing happened. Right? Because the, the king liked the guy. And they're going to go to him for meat or to shelter him. A lot of times, same problems like have in America, Blaze and Silver. The shogun's no good. The shogun gets fired. The shogun complains to the king, and the king says, rehire him. What are you going to do? They'd have to go to the Rajput, and the Rajput would have to try to explain to the king, and sometimes the king would listen, sometimes the king would not listen. I mean, he had his hands full. He had his hands full. And then on top of that, as you know, the Rajput also tried to write a shulchanar. Correct? You know, the uh, Torah Sabayis and Abbas Kodesh and all that, he's trying to organize the halachas. And he had a little bit of the, as you know, he had a little bit of the um, idea of Yosef Karo, a short version, a long version of Torah Sabayis HaKotzer, Torah Sabayis HaKotzer, and in addition to that, he wasn't the only Talmud Chacham in Barcelona. You know, his big pluck is always the Ra'ah, Ra'ar Nalevi de la Clara, the Ra'ah, who wrote the Sefer Chinuch, and things like that. And, you know, he criticized him in the Torah Sabayis and all that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, many times, the Rajma and the Rob were hooked together by the king to set up one of these cases to judge one of these, um, you know, issues that the king would just dump on them all the time. It's extraordinary how you see all these royal records from the Goyim. And it's clear, as far as the king is concerned, he knew who to go to. He knew who the big rabbis were, the honest ones. Because he's always throwing it on the Rajva, the Ra'ab, Rabbeinu Yonah, also the, by the way, also the, the, the Ritva. The king knew, you know, who were the real rabbis. That's just interesting. But it meant that if you're the Rajva, uh, it's a good, you're going to laugh at what I'm about to say. It's a good thing you know shots at fingertips, because otherwise you wouldn't have time to learn. <laughs> right? Uh, now, the truth is that those type of people who were Gedole uh, Chidushim, Gedole Chuvis, one helped the other. You get it? Somebody like the Rajva, every day is getting a Shiloh, or multiple Shilohs from all over the world. I'll say it again. Not only from Spain, from everywhere. But he's got a yeshiva, and colleagues and senior students. This itself helps you in the Lombus. Because they'll say, listen, I got a Shiloh from this and this place. This is Sugin Yavamas. How will we learn it? We learn it this way. But that won't help this agona, or that won't help this case over here. Let's learn it closer, and less subjected to penetrating analysis. You get what I'm saying? The chuvas part helps you on the on the lumdus, and the lumdus part helps you on the chuvas. In his case, it worked nicely together, nicely together, as we all know. And that's why the chuvas Rajar are like the classics. I would even say, thinking about it, that the Rajar was the guy who started Charles and chuvas. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, there were people before him who did that. But the Rajvah's Chubas, which are voluminous, were several thousand. Several thousand. The Rajvah's Chubas um, were published as a unit, Charles Chubas the Rajvah, 
and uh, they were copied everywhere. He's the first one I can think of who published a discrete separate set called My Shalos and Shubas, and the book circulated as a Shalos and Shubas Sefer. Notice, Rashi wrote quite, I mean, any Talmud Chacham those days, a rabbi would write Shalos and Shubas. People write them questioning, write the answers. Many of them didn't collect them all, and those who did, they just collect them, they never prepared them for publication, as we would say today. Rashi, or Tom, or Tom did a little bit with the Sefer thing, whatever it's called, Sefer Yosher. You know, there are such things. The Gaonim, for example, we call Chubas Gaonim. I mean, they never collected them as far as we can tell and prepared them for publication. Uh, the Riff and people like that, they're little things. Somebody preserved them usually after their death and, and assembled them. The Rajma put out, like, you know, uh, I don't know if it was a lifetime or not, but clearly it was, it was organized for the purpose of being published as a discrete book called The Chalice of Chubas so even if you didn't have the Chedushi Rajma or any other stuff, the Chorus you still have the, the Chubas. This, I think, is the first example uh, that I can think of, of like a published formal set of responsa, and therefore he's followed by so many others. He's followed by so many others. Uh, so we're dealing with a major person in Jewish history over here. Now, um, in addition to everything I just said, he lived in tumultuous times. Uh, you know right away, for example, that, uh, as I said before, his rabbi was Ramban. Ramban had to go through that debate with the Christian guy. And then as a result, had to flee the country. And that reflects the fact that the Catholic Church was really feeling its oats and had a very powerful intellectual kufa. I won't go into. And one of the aspects of their self-confidence intellectually, the Catholic Church, was a sustained intellectual attack on Judaism. The debate of Ramban was just one piece of that. It continued after Ramban. If you remember, the king himself, after the debate with Ramban, with the Christian guy, the king himself went to Shul in Barcelona, that Shabbos, to give a missionary speech to the Jews. It's in the Vikuch Ramban. The Barajah was undoubtedly there. Uh, and so when the Ramban leaves the country, the Rajva, among other things, has to deal with this missionary business, which was a big and sustained. And I can only tell you that um, it, it, the Catholic Church really went at it, and they wrote things in Hebrew. They were not dumb, and they did persuade a lot of Jews to convert. You can't help it, you can't deny it. And including some big Rabbanim, it's Abner, Burgos, and others, it's weird. But it did happen. Now you have to understand, Spain is super Catholic, and the guys I'm talking about were intellectuals of their sort, and consequently, one of the things the Rajma did, in addition to running yeshiva, in addition to running his business, in addition to doing the shalos and shubas yombalala, in addition to being a, a forced troubleshooter by the king to the point that he had to be surrounded by bodyguards, and so on and so forth, in addition to all the rest of it, he had to deal with missionary problems that had counter, like we say today, counter-missionary activity. Counter-missionary activity. And um, this led the Ramban, I'm sorry, the Rajvar, our hero, to have to do, um, what shall I say, uh, to have to deal with uh, questions of the type the Ramban had to deal with. The Hainu, first of all, Psukim, you know, they'll say this refers to Jesus, and we have to say no, it doesn't. 
you know, like Yosef Shave Mehuda Mechug Ben Raglov and all that. Number one. Number two, uh, Gemaras. Because here's the remarkable part. The Catholic Church was so stark that they went to the trouble and committed resources to getting people to translate for them and Meshemadim and things like that. The whole Torah Shabbat Pet, Bavli, Yushalmi, Mechilta, Sifra, Sifri, to Sefta, the Gansa business. It's amazing. And in fact, the most famous of these guys, uh, Raymond Martini, Ramon Martin, uh, wrote a whole book, which is around online, called Pugia Fide, The Dagger of Faith. Notice I'm going to take this dagger and thrust it into the breast of Judaism, that uh, bad woman. And uh, it's full of um, riots, as they would call it, from Shas, Babu Yushami, and all the rest of it, to the truth of Christianity. Right? Now, uh, obviously, you can imagine what kind of book it is, but nevertheless, it's remarkable. It's in Latin. And by the way, you see, they quote Agathas and everything right and left. Now, he's not he's not interested in Shoshana Gazapor, but he certainly is interested in, in the Gemara's about, uh, you know, Perkelech and all that. Anything up to it with Shiach or anything remotely connected to that. You know, Yerusha Rishonah, Yerusha Shniah, Yerusha Shlishis, Kedusha Rishonah, Kedusha Shniah, all kind of things like that. And as a result, our hero had to deal with this junk. And the Jewish communities, generally speaking, didn't contain people that knew to respond to this any more than they do today. Which, who, who listening out there is a bucky and anti-missionary stuff? And so you write to the Rajbo, as, as if he didn't have enough junk already to deal with. And his time was already committed to the full Jewish activities. And he, therefore, published his uh, Pirush on the Agatatas and things like that uh, in order to give the Jewish angle to this. As you know, uh, he's always going to be concentrating on any type of thing that the Christians might use. Just off the top of my head as I'm speaking to you, uh, Purim's around the corner. And there's the famous uh, statement in the Ushami, which the Rambam mentions, I remember in Hilchus Megillah, which is, and you know this, he said, one day all the all the holidays will be bottled except for Purim Yom Kippur. So the idea of all the holidays will one day be bottled sounds like a Christian vart. Why? The whole Christian thing is, the Old Testament was temporary. Now we have the New Testament. So all the laws are only temporary. The only problem with the Jews is, they're too stubborn to realize it. Even in the Gemara, they talk about a time when holidays will be bottled and mitzvahs will be bottled. And so... The Rajvah said, and he always tried to be very rationalistic in, in these approaches, I found, because he trying to give an approach that would that the average Balabas and even a Christian would understand. And so the Rajvah says very famously, doesn't mean there'll be bottle. How's it go? He says that what it means is that the, there will be times in Jewish history, one reason or another, that the Jewish religion will be persecuted and suppressed. And as a, as a result, a certain holiday will not be followed. For example, let's say Pesach. There'll be times when Jews are, Judaism is so persecuted that no Jews are able to celebrate Pesach. So Pesach will be bottled. Get what I'm saying? But temporarily, temporarily. So I'll, I'll just give an example. When the Jews were um, in Spain later on after 1492, when Judaism was closed down. So obviously, Pesach was closed down. 
Pain's always closed down. The only thing is, Yom Kippur and Purim will never that will never happen. That's his touch. You know, it's a, it's a whatever answer, but it typically fits the uh, matzav in which they're trying to respond to the very heavy missionary pressure and make the arguments that parts of Judaism one day be bottled, nothing will be bottled. And he does the same thing like the Rambam with the Pesukim and, um, and with Gemaras. And uh, if you want to, you, uh, you know, where you, if you're interested in what I'm talking about, which most people are not, uh, you get the Oats of uh, It's online. Uh, Oats of from Eisenstein, who uh, 100 years ago collected a lot of these uh, records of these debates and disputations. The famous Jews have a Christians, and uh, what do you call it? And he uh, assembled them all in there. One of Mr. Rashba, versus the Christian guy, uh, did he? Uh, w- some people say. Now we're getting historical. That he actually debated Raimundo Martini. Others say not. Doesn't matter who he was. The point is that he had to deal with this business as well. I remember also, for example, on Tikkun Sofram. Because um, one of the one of the claims, oh, how should I put it? Many of the Christian claims come from a Muslim critic of Judaism, Ibn Hazm. Ibn Hazm was the time of Shmuel Nugget, and Shmuel Nugget knew a lot about the Quran and could could rip that up. And so Islam turned it turned it on the Torah, and he wrote a book, and the Christians copied a lot of his stuff. So the Rajma had to write a thing against Ibn Hazm as well. I think. I didn't see it, but I think that's what they publish now is the Maimral Yishmol. And uh, what was I going to say? Um, Ism Hazm says, um, what is it again? Oh, yeah. Taken over him. You know, um, one of the claims of the Islam, which the Christians followed up on, was that the Jew, you can't rely on the Torah because it's been tampered with by the Jews. Even the Jews agree to that. They admit it. Where do you see that? You have taken so from. In other words, there are places where the Pashim shot is that originally said one thing in the Torah, and the Jews changed it. For example, Avram Odeno made Lefni Hashem should really be Hashem Odeno made Lefni Avram back in Pashas, what, Leir or something. Uh, and, you know, they say taken so from. Now, there were those, like the Aruch and others, who said, yeah. Um, Ezra and Chemi, those people, using their judgment, in certain places changed the wording of the Torah here and there. A little bit, a little bit. They had reason to do so, but they're not faking you out. They'll say, really, it says Hashem Omeid Lefnei Avram, but they're saying Avram Oden Lefnei Hashem. For some people in the show won't get shocked or something like that. Uh, oh my goodness. So I could hear that. I'll say it again. There are some Roshonim that said that way. So obviously it's a hearable proposition. But this was thrown at the Rajva by um, uh, Christians using the Ibn Hazm arguments. You see, even you Jews are uh, twisting the Torah, changing the, the language. Who knows what else you changed? And then the Rajva says, no, that's not what Tikkun Sofer means. It means rather that the original Nusach is Avram Odenel Hashem, but it's a nice way of writing it. You know what I'm saying? No, it's really, it's Hashem Odenel Avram. But when the Rabbanu Shalom dictated the Torah to Moshe, he said, to put it in a nicer way. So Tikkun Sofram basically be like this. Look here, you idiot. If you don't pay 
by, you know, January uh, 28th, we're going to put your tail in court and we're going to burn you and we're going to crash your uh, stupid business and so on and so forth. But when he gives it to the secretary, to the sofa, says that we would appreciate payment at your earliest convenience. Thank you so much. Those you, you you take the boss's uh, uh, rough language and you redo it in nice language. And so that would be ticking so from. Uh, so the bottom line is the text of the Torah that we have in front of us is identical with the text of the Torah that God dictated to Moshe. The language was uh, put in somewhat euphemistic terms by God, not that the Jews tampered with it. Now, wh why does the Rosh say that? If you're being historical, he's trying to slug up those who say the Jews are guilty of tampering with the Torah. You see? So what I'm trying to say is a lot of these writings that he has in terms of the um, a lot of these writings he has in terms of the uh, Agatha's explanation of Sukim, uh, disputations, debates, things like that, are all in what we call apologetic form. Apologetics means, not that you're apologizing, you're trying to defend the Jewish religion against the, the attacks of its critics. That's what, that's what we're boiling down to. You see? And he always has this in mind. Now look at the poor guy. You're trying to run a yeshiva, you're trying to run a business, you're trying to send, publish you know, dictate multiple shows every day, every day. He has thousands, multiple shows every day. That itself is a, is a whole job. He's living five lives. He's also trying to write a Shulchan Aruch. That's the Avodah Zakodesh and the, uh, the other one, the Torah Sabayas. What else is he trying to do? He's always dealing with the king, whether he likes it or not. The king is saying, I have an interesting case I want you to look into. And don't worry, I'm going to send you a bodyguard. <laughs> you see? And, uh, and 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 many of the cases are messy. Two communities are arguing over taxes, or two communities are arguing over this, or one guy says he messed over. Right so it's a pain in the neck. And being the Rajva, he's a from guy, so I mean he didn't get money for this. He got Scarbatella, okay, you know. But he's not. Let's put it this way: he could he could definitely do without all this. Uh, but precisely because he has the reputation of being from and l'shem shemayim and honest, that's why the king wants him. Then he's got to deal with the. Christian politics and the apologetics and the disputations and all that stuff. I mean, he lived 10 lives, you see? So the person I'm describing had to be extremely organized, disciplined, productive. Either he wrote a ton or he dictated a ton. His students must have helped him. Uh, but the, I don't know how you run a yeshiva in the 13th century with hundreds of guys. I mean, just the logistics of it. So who who was his, uh, you know, what's the right word? Who was his money raiser? Who was his um, administrator? Who ran the dorms, the food every day? There's an incredible question. I can't, well, hold on for a second. Okay, now I switched this. Um, where was I holding? I was. I think I was trying to sell, tell you, imagine what a, a busy schedule he had. Uh, and then, they did. listen, it's impossible to go through... All the stuff to Rajah. So imagine somebody with several thousand tissue, but you could spend your lifetime. And I mean it, just going through it. He's got something to say in every subject, obviously, in every aspect of halacha and in almost every aspect of Agatha. Uh, you know, the uh, Moser of Cook put out uh, two volumes years ago. I have it somewhere the uh, Shubas of the Rasha, just in the Agatha stuff, with extensive notes from Dimitrovsky. I mean, that itself is, a, is an avoda. Right, if you want something for a seder, plus all the thousands of others in every aspect of life, I mean, it's just incredible. Now, um, 
The only thing I would call attention to is the fact, the Hashkafa side, very briefly. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, the Rajput got involved or sucked into a major Hashkafa argument, um, what we call the Third Maimonidean Controversy, in the late 1200s, early 1300s. Um, basically, we're talking about the nature of modern orthodoxy as that term was uh, used in the 13th century in Provence, on Languedoc. So, the Raja lived in Spain, and he was the big Godot. But don't think when I say Godot, you know, people listen to him or anything. He wasn't the official rabbi anyway. He had the charisma. He had that authority. The king trusted him. But as you see, he was beat up when people didn't like him. You know, not all Jews say, oh, the Raja said it. So, I'm saying this because as a Godot, and obviously a very smart cookie, obviously, he had to be very careful about the tenuous nature of his authority and to husband that authority to be able to use it for the best possible use on certain occasions. And what I mean by that is, since he had such a large and variegated seaboard, first of all in Barcelona, second of all in Aragon, and third of all in Spain, and fourth of all in the Velt, so, you know, like a physical a god all like that has to realize you can't push things too far to the right, too far to the left. It's always static. Uh, I'm sorry, it's never static. It's always fluid. It's a situation to try to maintain your authority. L'shem Shemayim for the best possible purposes. So, um, the, the very briefly, the Rambam died in 1206, something like that. And the Rambam, in his writings, has what we, what we, I'm going to use vulgar terms. He has what we call right-wing stuff and left-wing stuff. So, the right-wing stuff, all right. But the left-wing stuff, the, the rationalistic kind of things, the, Ra, the Rambam being the Rambam, you know, he he has certain things he writes over there, but, you know, it, speaking very broadly, he goes close to the left, but never falls off the off the cliff, you know. But uh, after he died, there were those in um, near Spain uh, who did push it off the cliff. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, very simple terms. But I got to watch out because this could be a whole bit. I'm thinking of doing a series of this in the summer. I was talking with Ariel about, about the Maimonidean controversy, but that would require, you know, like a lecture series of hours. And that, maybe we'll do that this summer. Uh, the Rambam, for example, makes it clear, uh, and this is something we all know today, that um, a, a part of scripture is allegorical. Uh, obviously, when it talks about God doing physical things, it's not to be taken literally. Right? Uh, when Hashem says, I'm coming down to Mount Sinai, I mean, he didn't climb down like Jack and the Beanstalk. So what does it mean? That's a good question you just asked. What does it mean? Or when it says, let me see, let me go down to earth and see what they're building in the Tower of Bubble. God does not go down to the earth, right? God is not in earth, in space. He created space. He created time. You know, so all these are just, like you say, martial allegories. Fine. So, even though it says that God hit Egypt with a big hand, it doesn't mean he has a hand. Okay, so what you're telling me is you don't take everything in the Chumash literally. So, what else do you not take literally? Get it? Uh, did Billam's donkey talk? Was the world really created in, 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 in six days? Uh, did the Red Sea really split? Etc. Etc. No, what we do with miracles? Are which, which miracle do you take literally? Which miracle do you take not literally? 
That's about, the Ramban never left a key. He, he did He said, "This is how you can tell what's literal, not literal." That's because the Rambam is from, and therefore he's saying, you know, certain things like, like uh, 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 attributing physicality to God, you have to do allegorically. Other things are not; you don't do allegorically. But he never explained why. And if you want to, you could always say like this: Listen, it said that God has a hand. It said God has a face. It said God has nose. Bcharapi, you know, my my nostrils flare. So you're just telling me, yeah, but logic and reason tells you it can't be literal. Okay, what if my logic and reason tells me I don't believe there was an Avram or a Yitzhak? I don't believe the Red Sea split. I don't believe Adam and Eve, you know? Once you tell me the logic and the rationality, your personal rationalism, it was guides you in what you take literal or not literal, then you make a half carous. This is what I mean when I say it went off the cliff. That in the 1200s in uh, southern France, in, in, in Provence and Languedoc, Primarily in the Languedoc, that's the part of what you call France today, which is near Spain, near Pyrenees. Uh, there were, as I would say, to use the modern, there was the modern or the left wing Orthodox, shall let's call it that way, because they considered themselves Orthodox, who pushed it. And they wrote books and things like that in which they said, Adamachavan never existed, Avram Yitzhak never existed, Avram and Sar is just a representation of Chomer and Surah. Uh, by the time you're finished, nothing really happened. Everything is is is, is, an, uh, is a philosophical allegory. That is a tricky ground. If you told me, like this, listen closely. If you told me, there is an Avram and a Yitzhak and a Yaakov. There is an Avram and a Sarah. And there were people like that, and she really had a baby at 100, etc., etc., etc. You told me, in addition to that, in other words, in addition to it being a historical fact, it's also true that you can understand the story of Avram and Sarah as Chomer and Surah. All right. So that's different. Then you're saying it is true, but it has more than one meaning. Shivan Panam Torah. You know, you can like it or dislike it. Somebody can say, eh, I don't hold from that stuff. But at least you're not denying the facticity of it. But some of these guys, they were like cover they were sworn like this. Right? In which the way they present it sounds like they don't believe it really happened. This is what all hell broke loose. And uh pretty soon, what you're really doing is you can kill all the mitzvahs. Uh, if there was, I mean, it goes without saying, if there really wasn't a Yitzhiz Mitzrayim, I don't know if they went on that one, but let's say they did. If there really wasn't a Yitzhiz Mitzrayim and, and the blood on the doors represents, you know, emotions on your uh, logic, whatever, then I don't have to eat matzah, bottom line is, get it? Notice, for the first time you found in the 13th century in Provence, people who um, stopped keeping mitzvahs in principle, antinomianism. So you had a problem, therefore, with the allegorical interpretation of the scripture, and you also had a problem with what we call the rational interpretation of the mitzvahs. Because it, uh, now the Rambam does give these rationalistic interpretations, but anybody who knows the Rambam well will know he doesn't mean that's the whole reason for it. It's a reason. When the Rambam says, for example, carbonus is because at that time people were primitive, that's one way of looking at it. But elsewhere, the Rambam says, don't treat carbonus lightly, the whole world stands on carbonus. At the end, the Hilchus Karbanos. And so what he's trying to say is like this. When you're speaking to a modernish guy, you explain it this way. You're speaking to a from guy, you explain it that way. Not that you're being a hypocrite, but you have to be able to present it to your audience. But really, he himself holds from it as a real thing, as a from thing. I hope I made myself clear. So these issues popped up. And by the time you get to the late 1200s, uh, the left wing was pretty stark uh, in Provence. 
and um, and Languedoc, and one of the and whenever there's a left wing thing, it provokes a right wing counter reaction, and so the right wingers, who are the frummies, want to get the left wingers banned, put them or at least to declare that approach treif. And uh, Abamar Hayarchi, a guy from Luniel, uh, Luniel is in in, in uh, southern France in Provence, which means the moon, like like lunar, lunar. So that's Hayarchi Yerach. See, he was a leader of the right wingers, and he appealed to the Rajba, who was an old man. By this time, Rajba was in the seventies, and saying, "Listen, we have to declare this whole Hashkafic approach treif." And we have to put this whole thing in, in a cherub. And if somebody will do it, they'll do it, but at least they'll know it's not Jewish. And um, and he engaged a whole correspondence with the, with, with the Rajva. Now, what's really interesting is he brought in whole questions of magic and things like this. I forget exactly how it goes, but you have to look all this inside. All this material I'm talking about was collected by this guy, Abu Mariachi, and published as a separate book back in the 1300s, meaning they make copies, called Minchas Kino'os. Minchas Kino'ot. And uh, this was not published in book form until the 1800s, isn't that interesting, in Pressburg. I have, it's one of those old reprint type things. But and it's much clearer uh, reading, the way I like it, not the kudos yet, but like it, in um, one of the recent sets, of the Chubas Arashba, there's a very nice set called Shells and Chubas Arashba, HaKadosh, HaShalom, HaMafor, and so on and so forth, which is published in Yerushalayim, I don't know, not long ago, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, in block print, you know, so I like that part, and, and it's it's like 10 volumes, uh, it's actually, fat, I have them collected into 5 volumes, with Hosafos and Maftechos, it's a very nice edition, in my opinion, of the Shuvah Sarajvah, with nice um, um, indices. And what really I bought it was because in the back, in the last volume, which would be volume 10, is the Minchas Kanos. Right? So you have a nice, easy block print, very clear reading, all these letters collected by Abba Mariachi, and he ended up, as you'll see in a minute, writing to all the Gedolim of that time, Basically asking, what do you think of college, to use modern terminology? What do you think of study of philosophy, secular studies, and all the rest of it? How does it relate to Torah and all the rest of it? You know, how do you do that? Right? And um, this was all within his attempt to try to, to assemble a coalition of, of from right-wing rabbis to all agree to issue a harem against the, uh, the left wing. That's basically what it boiled down to. In the beginning, he had this whole business where he writes to the Rajah back and forth about his child, about um, uh, which was going on at that time. What's the story with talisman, especially, uh, you know, let, let's put it this way. You have kidney stones. I've had kidney stones. It's a, it's a, it's a bummer. Well, nowadays, you have modern stuff on it. You know, the lysotrypsy and all this other modern uh, technology. But long ago, you didn't. So they used to believe, long ago, in what they call astral medicine. Which is you get a lion medallion. You you, you make a, something that looks like a lion, like a, like a medallion, okay? And it's a metal disc, and you have to make it during a particular phase of the moon, and you engrave it with the sign 
of the Zodiac, the lion, Leo the lion, okay? And then you strap it over the kidney that hurts, and it's supposed to make it uh, go away because it will beam down therapeutic forces from the stars. So it's a mixture of medicine and hocus-pocus and astrology and all this kind of business. It was widely practiced. They call it astral magic. You understand? The celestial bodies, you know, give off uh, the energies that can, you know, what can I tell you? That cure things. Uh, it can even be calculated as, uh, mathematically and astro astronomically. Okay? Now, a lot of people are into that in those days. And the question was, was this okay or not? And, you know, the Rambam would be against it, but the Rasha said it's okay. And Rabbi Mariachi was surprised at that. And the Rasha said, listen, uh, you find in the Gemara they use all kind of stuff. Some of it sounds like magic. And the Rasha says something that I always like, which is, Magic is simply a term we use for something that works, and science hasn't figured it out yet. If it works, it's not really magic. You get it? But we don't know how it works yet, and so we'll call it magic. I think it's a very smart way of approaching it. And you get out of all the hardcore, rigid classifications of the Maimonidean systems. At least to me. I always like that. So in other words, you do something... Like, I tell you like this. I know a guy who can fly from Baltimore to Israel. Ooh, sounds like magic. When you learn the science of aerodynamics, there's a thing called the airplane. It's not magic anymore. So, this business with the with the kidney stone, you know, it maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but it's not trafe to use it. Let's put it that way. Now, I'm simplifying what's a complex subject, but I'm not spending an hour going into this. If you're interested, you look up to Michael's Canoes yourself. But this led him one thing to another in a lot of politics. And what's really interesting is that the Raja was the rabbi in Barcelona. He had a charismatic authority wider than Barcelona. He was very careful. You can see that he was very reluctant to issue a cherem. Now, I could be wrong about this. This is a whole very fascinating subject. If you are at all interested in this, what I'm talking about, you'll read the Michas Canoso. If you want to see it in English... There was a guy named Sarachek back in the 1930s who published a book called Faith and Reason. Uh, got a cop for album. And that guy went, it was like a, sort of like a dissertation. And he went through all, you know, blow by blow. I'm hoping possibly, let's say, say maybe I'll do it this summer. Um, because the guy ends up writing to all the Gadom, the Rush, the Meiri, this one, that one, the other one. What do you think of college? And some say college is straight, and some say college is kosher, and some say it's Lachachil, and some say Bediyevit. It's just a very interesting subject. And uh, through all this, you see that the Rajva, if you look at it closely, the best historians will tell you, if you look at it closely, you see the Rajva was, as you and I would understand, really a frummy, a right-winger. If it was up to him, people wouldn't learn all this secular stuff. Unless you're the type of person, you're a from person, it won't make you not from. He's definitely would not be in favor of a young guy, uh, you know, learning this kind of business. If you want to understand who the Rajva is, and it's totally understandable, he knew all this, but his attitude is, he doesn't write this, but this is what it boils down to. Just because I took these courses and didn't go off the derrick doesn't mean I'm, represent, I'm, I'm recommending somebody else should do that. Now, mind you, in Spain, uh, and the Rajva always writes, we don't have this problem in our community. You have this problem in southern France, which is baloney. There were plenty of non-from and uh, bad hashkafa guys 
in Spain. But I guess he didn't want to talk about it. I guess he didn't want to talk about it. We had plenty of Averroians, as they call it, who were into the philosoph- philosophizing and not believing in the mitzvahs and so forth. And the point is that you see this Abba Mariachi and others are coaxing the, rum- the Rashba. You're the Godolador. You're the person with the Rashba. You should come out and make a harem on this. And it'll help the cause. And he didn't want to do it because the worst thing is that um, uh, two things. Two bad possibilities. One possibility is they'll make a harem and nobody will listen to it. And then it looks like a a farce. The second possibility is this will provoke a left-wing reaction. And they'll go even worse. And this this fear is a sign of a of a guttle who's like a rub of a whole community or a whole bunch of communities. Like I mentioned the other day with the Ksav Sovereign, you got to be careful not to push things too far. And by the time the process is over, the Rajput, you see, wanted, if you ask him himself, he would like to ban it all. He himself was a very firm guy, and he was quite aware, he knew philosophy. I'm talking about Aristotelian philosophy. And he understood the kashas that are out there. These are from guys he doesn't care. But he understood the danger of people going into that and then going off the dirt. It's like somebody today saying, I had a good education, but I'm not recommending my son should take that education course. Ah, uh, you went to Harvard. Yeah, I went to Harvard. I know how, how trafe it was. Therefore, just because I succeeded doesn't mean I want somebody else to take the same chance. I think I told you this once. I, I remember long, long ago, I read a uh, interview in the Hadoar which was the Hebrew newspaper. I saw an old copy. I think, I believe it was 1960. And the guy was interviewing Lubavitcher Rebbe in a secular newspaper. And he asked, if I remember correctly, the, the, the journalist asked Lubavitcher Rebbe, are you in favor of college? He said, no. He said, ah, you went to college? He said, just because I jumped off the second floor and didn't break my leg, I'm not telling somebody else to do that. You know, there's a certain way of looking at things. And uh, different directions pulled in different directions. By the time it's over, he did issue the cherem, right? Now, the way it's published in the book, it's, it's, it's been tampered with by the frummies. They made it a little stronger than he said it, but it doesn't matter. And he basically came out against the study of uh, philosophy and that sort of thing. But it's nuanced. Uh, the real people to the right of him wanted to ban the Mornavuchim and things like that, and he said, no. No, cherems uh, or anything to Ram about. Ram was Kodesh Kadoshim even though it is true that we don't exactly hold from all of his stuff. Right? There are things the Rambam says we say controversial, but not going to ban anybody, anything the Rambam wrote. Also, those who are going for, for medical school and they're studying medical books, they can read all this stuff. At that time, in order to get your MD, you had to pass take philosophy courses. So I guess his hope must have been, first of all, he didn't want to alienate the, those who are in medical school because you know the families just won't listen. And second of all, the hope is, since you're focused on a career, you're not going to go off to Derek, you know. Take a couple of liberal arts courses, but your Iker is your med stuff, pre-med stuff. Uh, third of all, he said after you're 30 years old, I think it was, or 40, I think after 30, and you've molly crazy, but shots and post then you So once you're 30, you're married, you're more settled, hopefully it won't lead you off to Derek. Uh, even so, if you look at the Menchus Kanos, there's a they always append a very famous letter in the Shalom Shubhra from the Frum left wingers, Yadaya Bdersi, who um, uh, writes a whole Savis Nostalus and all this at the end, where he says, 
Don't ban this. How can you do this? You know, we can't live without secular studies. It's like you would say in America, I'm prohibiting now, I'm making an author with a cherem, nobody can, can read a newspaper or look at the internet. Period. It's exemption to be The Rajba, as far as we know, didn't respond. But I think he died around that time. And then the whole Provence went into uh, uh, Gaulus because the, the king came in and exiled all the Jews. So it became something of the whole the whole affair. But it's very famous that the, that the Rajva came out with a, with a balanced, nuanced harem against the study, as we would say today, of liberal arts, or the type of limuri chol that would present a problem for Yiddishkeit. So in other words, like the Vilna Gaon type, this is a certain type. I'm not against math. There's nothing to crave about math. I'm not against pure science, if it is pure science. Now, if science also believes in astral magic, like with the medallion, then science is trending on the area of religion. Let's say, for example, pure math, pure chemistry, things like that, then he wouldn't have a problem with. If you're talking about liberal arts, especially metaphysics, but he questioned things in the Torah, don't believe in miracles, all the rest of it, that he would be against. Uh, I remember years ago, they used to say, oh, as a result of this, the study of philosophy ceased and all the rest of it. That's baloney. Uh, you, you had a lot of, shall I say, Yiddishkeit problems. All during the lifetime of the Rajba, as I think I've indicated with the little I've shared with you today, they only got worse as the 1300s went on after his death. They were from, but they're also not from in the community. That's what Spain was. Uh, they were always under tremendous pressure from the guy, especially from the Christian church. And the long run, it all blew up. We all know what happened to the Jews in Spain. But during the 1200s, during the time of the Rajba, and his immediate aftermath, um, there were a lot of from, and the level of Torah study was was very high if you have people like him running around. Uh, life was strange because he had this mixture of the king and the royal government mixed up with the Jewish stuff. Uh, I mean, really, it's always strange. You know, the king gives him presents from time to time, but if you read the records, he takes it from another Jew. <laughs> like, he says, I'm going to give the Raja a present of a thousand gold pieces. Hey, Schwartz, come here, give me a thousand gold pieces. <laughs> You know, the king never takes out of his own money. Uh, the Jews did their best to try to uh, always keep equilibrium in the crazy society, uh, you know, that was all around at that time. And uh, still, for a person that didn't hold an official position as an Al-Bazin, uh to attain that stature and to be one of the immortals is uh, quite remarkable. And as I said before, the Rajah must just have been a very interesting person to be able to accomplish so much in the course of a day. I mean, we don't know. Is he the type of person that, like the Vilna Gona slept two hours a night? I don't know. Right? But he had a lot harder job than the Vilna Gona. Vilna Gona was not involved in Tzarkat Sibur by and large. Vilna Gona was able to sit in Dalamas and learn all day. No Batola, but learn all day. The Rajah was constantly schlepped out of the base medrash by the, the community, by the Shilas, by the politics, by the missionaries, by the government, right? Now, it it, it speaks well of him. Uh, you can say, you know, somebody will say like this, how do you know these rabbis are really what you say? Maybe it's all hagiography, maybe it's all art school biography. You know, how do you know these people are really as, as big as you do? Well, if it's a case of the Raj where people like that, the best testimony of the guy, because you see, the kings and the queens of the country always turn to them, any man that got difficult, totally relying on their wisdom 
and on their honesty and their probity. That's called a Kiddush Hashem. You see? We know this guy is going to give you the balanced and true and not uh, bribable, uh, you know, psak or ruling or arbitration. And um, that is kind of interesting. Now, there's a lot more, obviously, you can say in the Rasha, but I'm going to try to be mitzvahs myself right here. And once again, we thank the Raidens for being the sponsors of this whole last week, the, the last two and today. So with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.